Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to another episode of the Health and Wealth Power Hour. While we are so glad for you to be here today, we're almost as glad as the lawyers are about the Consolidated Appropriation Act. I'll tell you what, there is a lot going on out there. If you haven't seen it, that means you hadn't been looking. I'll tell you, the even big companies uh, going after each other right now. Uh, we have Heinz Craft going after Aetna. We have big unions going after some of the blues. Consolidated Appropriations Act is pulling the the uh, blanket back, is uh, really shining some light on some unsavory behavior. So I'm sure today with my guest, we'll hit on that as well as a number of other things. Uh, Matt Ort is joining us today. He recently released an incredible book called Save Your Company, Don't Feed the Beast, the Employer Healthcare Success Formula. And that's exactly what it is. It it shows employers how to stop feeding the beast, which many of these employers are just now finding out about because of the CAA. It goes directly to what Matt is writing about in his book to tell you how to stop this. In some cases, you'll never know what's happening. If you're not a big enough company to go after some of these, I promise you, their lawyers will not let you get pass go as it were. Um, but the reason Matt has such a great uh, introspect on this is because he's not an insurance broker. He's not an insurance advisor, but he still knows how to build plans because he actually did it from an HR position. After many years as an HR executive, he started realizing the problems were happening and he started taking action himself, not looking for someone else to do it, but started taking action itself. And he did it in a state where there wasn't a lot of things to work with there in the state of Wisconsin, which at the time he started down this pathway, he did not have a lot of relationships and he did not have a lot of ways to turn to build these things, but he made it work and he's still working diligently today towards this. We are super, super honored to have Matt Ort, who is not just a mover and shaker in the insurance industry, but is a proud foster parent and a real champion of that uh, organization and setup as well. So Matt, welcome aboard, buddy. Yeah, it's great to be here with you today. I look forward to our discussion. I'm sure it's going to be a good one. <laughs> yes, sir. Absolutely. I have one question for you to start out, and I mm -hmm. bet you it's going to bring up a whole bunch of other things. Why did you write this book to begin with? <laughs> Yeah, great question. I can tell you, well, even this whole journey of, of healthcare for me wasn't planned. Um, I've been uh, 
as you mentioned, the employer background. So just short of 25 years working for employers. And uh, honestly, I always found health care or the health plan boring. Um, and so it just there were just, you know, so I'm a, I'm wired in a way that I like to improve things and I like to help people and communities and make something better and so forth. And I, I think it was because I didn't see any opportunity there. A lot of times working for big, big corporations in the first half of my career, Fortune 100, they're very formal. They give you the script for the enrollment and you get up and you lead the enrollment. And uh, so that wasn't very fun for me. And sometimes even when I kind of was disagreeing or frustrated with with some of the details of the presentations, but uh, something changed for me. I, I started seeing the light in about 2013-ish and I had experimented with a nurse practitioner, but really didn't know much. And then in 16, took the VP of HR role with Merrill Steele. And then as we, we took the plane off and then we started building it, uh, things weren't as well known back then. Um, and then that led to a success story and it led to awards and it led to a whole bunch of people calling me, uh, the central Wisconsin employers and saying, Matt, how'd you do it? And uh, so that was kind of the spark. But I can tell you the healthcare journey, the uh, even now transitioning my career to co-found Self-Fund Health, which is a, a high-performing self-funded health plan, none of that uh, was in, in my sights at all, and I never would have imagined. So the book was really, I think, ultimately to fill a need. And, you know, it was a need of how'd you do that? And then it, and it was hard to explain. So it's like, wow, there's like a long conversation here, as you well know. And uh, it was really to fill the need of education and practice um, that I think is missing today. Even if you look on Amazon, right? I mean, if you look at employer success stories or high-performing self-funded plans, it's pretty much missing on Amazon. And I'm not sure why, um, but it is. So maybe we can all change that. Yeah, that's that's interesting you say that because both of us attend a few different conferences a year. Mm -hmm. And at those conferences, there's always those success stories, right? We always hear, whether it's a school district or a company like Merrill Steel or even a, 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 a municipality, someone that has had a success story. But you're right. There's not really any books about it. There's There may be some industry stories about it. Maybe there's a, a write-up about it somewhere in an industry magazine, but mm -hmm. there's not really any books about it. And there's certainly... Whenever you read the success story, it doesn't really tell you all the details of how they got there. It just tells you, oh, they saved $23 million or maybe they only saved $34,000. Uh, whatever it was, they talk about that side of it. And maybe they say they implemented. And if you don't know, you don't know, right? They implemented DPC. Well, okay. But how, what, why, when they, when you say implemented DPC, okay, I looked that up and see what that is. All right. But how? How did that make any difference? So I don't understand why that worked or what is really happened in that process. And so I agree with you 100% because as we've talked a number of times, a number of times, and I've heard your story a number of times. But until I read your book, right. I didn't really understand how you did it, hmm. the actual process you went through to do it. Mm -hmm. And all the way from the beginning, whenever I under, whenever I've heard the story that you had an accident with a tractor, well, after reading your book, now I really understand about the accident you had with your tractor. Holy, holy, yeah. what a deal right there. I mean, that was, um, 
that was eye-opening as well. Yeah. Uh, all the way, you know, it's it's one of those situations where I love the way you started the book because it captured you. It, it, it really captured you and said, hey, I was just a regular guy that all of a sudden had need for a system and thought you'd been in it for years. I mean, you're an HR person. You knew what to expect until you didn't know what to expect. <laughs> right. Right. It's yeah. It's kind of one thing to hear it and you try to empathize and, you know, from others and so-and-so has got this medical condition and, but it's another thing to live it. And uh, so I think that was a bit of an eye opener for me. I knew it was there and I kind of, that was, you know, I was learning those things, but when I lived it, that was, uh, that was a big spark for me to take significant action, which is what we did. Yeah. Everywhere from being rolled into the ER with my daughter um, and then not even getting attention. I couldn't get the clerk's attention. And uh, here I could have been bleeding in internally. At least she could have said, right, what's your condition? Or, you know, maybe I look better than I was, but uh, five broken ribs and a whole long list of injuries. And then probably the, you know, the whole experience would just felt very profit focused. I mean, it was good, good people trying to do the right thing. So I always want to give the caregivers credit. But when you're put into a broken system, it gets pretty difficult from the, the physical therapist, even the day that the next day that I was released, saying that I'm required to do this, Matt, you know, I mean, yeah. he's, you know, a very nice man. I'm required to do this, but we talk three or four minutes and then I get a 369. And I told him I don't want PT. I have PT through work and I get a three. And the part of the bill was I had to request even itemized, of course, afterward. Um, but 300 and I think it was $69. It's like, wow. <laughs> uh, I didn't get any PT. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so you that, talked to him. <laughs> that, that was, uh, I answered his questions. and, and yeah. uh, But that was a great motivator for me because now I could directly relate. And then every healthcare experience I've had thereafter, even with foster children, uh, and even my dad passing away a few months ago, I start to I start to naturally evaluate. I'm just observing uh, nurses and caregivers and doctors and receptionists, and in in my mind, it's like this is really from the top of that hospital. But are they are they are they really just seeing dollar signs when patients walk in? Or are they really seeing people? And it, it's interesting, and it seems to take kind of an extreme. You know, it's like this one, you know, my dad passing away in a rural Iowa hospital, they saw people and they even had a price estimator that were even like SEO, almost like prices. It was amazing. And then I see other ones where they're air flighting a child and the receiving hospital is saying, why'd you do that? And, you know, uh, and they said, well, because there were no ambulances available at 4 a.m. on a Monday morning to drive 30 minutes. And it's just a little bit hard to believe. So. Uh, yeah. But we start to kind of evaluate, you know, are they really caring for me or is this all about some money machine that's been created? No, I agree with you 100%. We we see such crazy things like that. Uh, we, we talked to a client out of out of Dallas that her child needed to be hospitalized in Boston because she needed a heart surgery that was only performed there. The insurance agreed to pay the transport. To get her to the hot to get her there. Then they denied to pay the transport to get her home. They said, Well, she's received her medical care. She We're received done. it. 
She's good. Well, no, she actually had to have medical transport back home because she couldn't. She's an infant. She had to have that level of care. But the insurance company couldn't see past the fact that the care had already been given. She's she's had her her surgery. She's good to go. It's a one way ticket, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's not. She's three months old. She's not good to go. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it was kind of, and I put some of these examples, and this wasn't actually a real life example. Have you ever seen that? It's like a meme, but it shows uh, there's actually an article on this. I have the article, but it was a little baby. They made a onesie, a sarcastic onesie. It said free hug or hugs, $39 and 35 cents. Did you ever see that one? I have. And that's where, so the uh, a woman had given birth to a baby. And they caught, they had a name for it. It wasn't hug. It's uh, skin to skin contact, right? Right. Uh, so, but they actually had the nerve to charge for that and itemize it on the bill. And I, I had, I had posted that once on LinkedIn and it's like, well, you were there anyway. Right. I don't know if that's really care. And so if that's how we're going to start to view things, but I posted that on LinkedIn once and, and a guy said, I don't see anything wrong with that. And I'm like, boy, oh boy, is this what we've become? So yeah. 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 No, yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember that. I remember that story, and I think that's what it was, right? Skin to skin contact or something that's is right. what they call well, that's it. That's what they. That's what they labeled it. Yeah, it wasn't a hug, but, yeah. <laughs> but because if I'm not mistaken, we had to figure it out, right? We had. Well, what does that mean? What does that really mean? Oh, it means a hug. What, it means, wait, what? Holding, it means holding a newborn baby. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I didn't check my bill for either of my kids back in the day. So maybe I should have uh, looked a little bit closer, but I don't know. Back then we probably didn't have quite the issue we have these days. I I don't know. Maybe we did, but I don't think uh, 20 years ago, it was quite as bad as it is today. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I, the graphs and even experiences. Yeah. I mean, my oldest is now 27. I've got a one-year-old grandson, but my first child, I had started a construction business at the age of 19. I think I was 20 or 21 when we had her. I remember going in and writing a check for, I think it was like $4,500 for the full birth process for her. And so, you know, I, I think this really has degraded. And the last is what I, in the book, and I think is my experience still 20 to 25 years. So before that, I don't think I don't think it was that way. I can't speak for every area, right? But generally speaking, this has been in the in the last couple of decades. Yeah, well, I think that it, you know at some point the charge master came around, right? So when that charge master came around, it gave this fictional point that everything kind of starts from. And even in your book, you talk about another. Not a really fictional point, but the price of Medicare, what Medicare will pay for something, uh, which is used a, a lot, of course, with reference-based pricing, which I'll be honest, whenever I read your book, I was surprised that you were not a fan of reference-based pricing, but your reasons for not being were solid. And uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting that what you are a fan of is your reference point pricing. In other words, if you but that's direct contracting, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's a direct contract that you really have. It's not a reference base now, right? Because, but now we know I have a contract with you for these services. And this is what we're going to pay. Yeah. And I've kind of labeled that as well, RBC or reference-based contracting where there's an agreement upon price. So I, I do have a little bit of an issue, you know, I, I don't, it, in, in the, you know, talking about trustworthy relationships, 
So if, if they broke trust, they do, they clearly have, and then to send them back another number, it feels risky to me, but you know, but what I, I will add the most of the reason I'm against that is because it doesn't work in Wisconsin. They will, they will okay. shoot it down as fast as you can throw the, the clay pigeon up. Um, but I do think in other states, in other states, it has been shown to work. And I, and so if I always say that if I had cases where it could work and say uh, patients in another state, that I would have open conversations with those members and say, here's how this game works. And, you know, are you open to it? And so it's not that I'm fully against it, but I've just found, I've also seen some train wrecks in Wisconsin where the company saved a lot of money, but then there's like a hundred balance bills and the wheels fell off. And so that's some of it as well. So Right. And I, I know you even mentioned in your book about if a company within a couple of years of going self-funded decides to go back to fully insured, it wasn't, it wasn't because self-funding don't work. It's because the way the actions that they took were not really conducive to make, to make it work. Right. Um, and so that gets me to a question of what your experience has been, because it, I personally, and I could be completely wrong here. I think whenever it doesn't work, a lot of times it's because the employees didn't embrace it because there was so much noise that people refused to go through with whatever plans you grand those plans that you had or in some cases, smaller steps. And they just refused. They just pushed back on it so much. The whole damn thing fell apart. So how have you uh, seen noise and what are some of the steps that anyone can go through to prevent that, to keep these negative things from happening? Right. Yeah. So uh, chapter six, you know, so I, it's a step in the formula and chapter six is dedicated to that change management lead, lead everyone from here to there, as I call it. And um, so I, I took a few notes here. So I've got a couple of neat points in your, in your questions, but the change management part is, is probably the biggest reason that a, a big transformation of any kind will fail, whether you're, you've got a new product to market or whether you're changing your culture or implementing lean manufacturing or uh, or you're changing the way you do your health plan, um, leading the people through that. And I found, you know, some nuggets along the way. I studied this in school, so it's always been a passion of mine. Uh, but before healthcare, I was leading culture change. So, but the change part, the change management part is still the same. One of the biggest things that people forget on that topic, Harlan, I've made this mistake is, right, you and I, let's say we have discussions once a week for a couple months and we're talking about all the reasons why something's broken and why we need to change. And you and I kind of agree we need to change. And then we and then we start talking about solutions and then we have a good solution. Well, then we get in front of, say, the workforce of a few hundred people and we forget about all those discussions we've had of why we detached from the bad, from the here, why we're willing to leave the here. And, and we all we're talking about is how great there is. Well, no, everyone else hasn't detached from here yet. I found that to be one of the biggest mistakes or oversights, if you will. <clears throat> you don't want to be negative, but you've got to get them. You've got to get them to say, we can't stay here. And then when they're willing to say that, then you can start talking about solutions. So that's one of the nuggets in the book and one of many. It's a pretty, pretty in-depth chapter, uh, but about change management. Uh, on your note about self-funding and companies that try it for a year or two and then bounce back, one of the, the biggest things I've seen there is that 
we seem to confuse sometimes, and I, I took a while to formulate this in my thoughts of how I label this, but I've labeled a high-performing strategy into three parts, self uh, or the financial part, uh, you know, are you going to fully insure, which isn't really a sustainable option anymore? Are you going to self-fund? Are you going to level fund? How are you going to pay your claims? How much risk are you going to take on? And then make sure you see all the dollars. There's the financial part. So if a company self-funds and bounces back after a couple of years, it wasn't the self-funding that failed. They didn't find a way. They were missing the next part, which is the medical strategy, right? So in other words, how are you going to pay less for your claims? Uh, if you don't pay less for your claims or you're not able to shop. So I found that's a key part in where companies or brokers or whomever have given up on self-funding. And I'm, it always kind of gets me going. It's like self-funding didn't fail. You just didn't put in a medical strategy. You didn't have any other way to save money. And so the kind of the fun analogy I've been using, right, is most don't actively manage their health plans, uh, especially on the fully insured side. Uh, but but when you're on the self-funded side, you want to actively manage it. You ever you ever play Yahtzee? You ever play that game? So that's kind yeah. of an old school game. Uh, there's yeah. even yard Yahtzee now where you got those gigantic dice. But I play. We play it at home, and we even have an electronic version on a little game board. But my daughter and I play it, and it's kind of funny, right? So I think with most plans, this is would be lacking a medical strategy. You roll your dice in January, and then in December you look at them and you say, "What what I get." And that's about as active as they get, right? Where you and I both know, let's roll the dice the first week of January. Let's let's keep the good ones. Let's roll again the second week of January. Let's keep rolling those dice and sorting those dice. And that some good things have to happen. Are we are we having MRIs? Or what are we paying for MRIs? Are we having surgeries, et cetera? And let's really get involved in this plan so that we would manage it like any other areas of the business instead of ignoring it like employers have done. Yeah. And, and that gets us then to, if you put these strategies in, you cannot just expect everyone's going to embrace them and start doing them right now. The engagement side comes And once again, if you don't look at your dice in your analogy until December, you don't even know who was engaged. You have no idea what's going on. And you look, you go, Oh my gosh, this was a terrible idea. Fire our broker and bring somebody else in. Right. Because this didn't do anything. Our costs are more. We're fixing to get a bigger increase in what we had. Why? Because you did nothing. And you didn't expect anyone else to change either. So it was an overall failure, like you mentioned. But right. what effective strategies have you seen to bring engagement up? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that question a lot, you know, having led HR. And I, I was always kind of a different HR person in that I actually drove change. I found that in some cases, HR folks are transactional or they avoid change. And if there's any HR folks listening, I would say, uh, take some chances, get out there and right, help people. And you can take calculated risks. But uh, this thing about no change, as Dave Chase had said, you know, um, HR people are basically given two directives from their presidents or CEOs. And I would agree with this. It wasn't verbalized to me, but, uh, you know, keep them happy and keep us from getting sued I'm like well that's that's kind of a lame role really right but and keep them happy there's a there's a nail in jello to a tree target kind of thing <laughs> um, yeah. but, and i would say is 20 years of really high premium increases and deductible increases is that keeping them happy i don't think that's keeping them happy anyway uh, but yeah in terms of engagement is you know if you were to ask as as i say in the book 
you know, if you were to ask me what, pick one word to describe leadership, and we all have our own word, and there's no right or wrong answer, but my word is involvement. And I believe no one's ever disagreed with their own idea. And I believe that when you can skillfully ask people their opinion, or the, or maybe the, what I call the four most important words, what do you think? Doesn't mean I'm always going to, we're, we're always going to be able to go with your, your uh, suggestion, but you had a voice. And I believe that people that are in the game are much more likely to play hard versus being, you ever, you ever ride the bench in sports? You ever play sports and ride the bench? I mean, maybe you're a good cheerleader from the bench, but I, I always found if I was on the bench, I was frustrated and, you know, I wanted to be in the game. So those that are in the game now, now they have a stake in the win or lose. And so lots of uh, collaboration, lots of involvement, let, empowering ex experts to do things. And um, there's all sorts of skills and gifts and talent out there far above what I've got. And so if you can just be the facilitator of that, a lot of good things will happen as well, not, instead of trying to do it all yourself. No, I, I think that's very important. But I want to go back, as you, you mentioned, most of your career has been HR. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing you you attended now and then HR conferences here or there, whether they were state, whether they were national, whatever. You went to this conference where in many cases they're rolling out the newest, latest, greatest thing that you as an HR director has got to know about. How much of that and how much of that noise in the HR world is worth your attention? And, and what I mean is that we talked a little bit ago uh, before we started this about all of the new fads, what all the HR people need to know and what all your employees want to know uh, or, or want added as benefits. And you're going to be left behind if you don't add these benefits, all of these things. Hmm. How much attention should HR people pay to that? Or should they actually do what you just said and do something nuts, like ask their hmm. own employees? Yeah, you know, I think maybe and maybe it's skewed a little bit for the type of folks that go into HR, you know, so maybe it's like uh, personalities or uh, so it's a skewed sample, if you will, in terms of being risk takers. So I have found that HR folks aren't risk takers. But you know what I've also found is that I've over the over the years, I've worked for several companies and I've inherited teams that I've led. And a lot of times, you know, I'll be humorous here. The first year they think I'm full of it or you know, I'm too optimistic. And then, but usually by the second or third year, they start to catch on and they start to act like me and they start to say, Hey, we can make this better and we can make this better. And that'd be actually fun because we're here anyway, might as well have fun. Right. And they start to think a little more like that. And they start, so it's not as much as they're permanently that way. It's just, they've adopted a lot of practices. You know, how do we, how do we hire someone? Well, here's how we hire someone. And then I'll say, how's it working? I don't know. I was in a, I was in a, you know, room once with 60 HR people and I had just met with this consultant beforehand and I was showing him our healthcare graphs and he was really impressed and inspired. And, but he said, he, he asked the room, he said, how many people have some sort of measures for whatever you do, turnover and healthcare costs, two people. And that was one of them, two people in the room raised their hand. So I don't think HR people are trained to do that. And so I think that's, I, I started out with a Toyota supplier in Toyota, a big flagship plant in Kentucky with 8,000 people and 3,000 cars a day. And we had rooms, even just HR, huge rooms, plastered the walls with measures. And so I guess I kind of learned some of those good habits early on. But to me, that's always what has made HR fun is 
Uh, it's a little, you know, a conversation with someone for an hour, you may not be able to measure that. But what can we measure and how can we then move those needles? That's what's always in then because you're doing that, you're helping people, right? If five people say the attendance policy sucks in one day, it probably sucks. And you probably should start talking to people about how to make it better. And of course, going through that change uh, is frustrating because there'll be someone who doesn't like it. And, you know, I think a lot of people avoid the change because of how challenging it can be. But I, I haven't. I've always kind of just dug in and tried to get as many to come with me and and went forward. And most of the time, I would say the outcomes were good. That That's interesting because in conversations with folks like Dave Chase, Nathan, uh, Nelson Griswold, uh, those guys' thought process on HR people is their adversity to risk is one of the reasons why they don't want to give level funded or self-funded a shot at certain sizes. I mean, you get to certain size companies, it's almost a no brainer. They almost have to, but you get to those companies that are 50, 80, a hundred, even 250. There's pushback there because we've always been uh, fully insured. And it's just part, that's just what we're going to get an eight to 15% every year. We just put it in the budget. We don't like it, but uh, you know, the old saying, no one ever got fired for, uh, having blue cross blue shield right, right. <laughs> that's very true <laughs> yeah and i was i was actually thinking the same thing as you said that is most people are if they're not risk takers well then why would i risk my livelihood i've got a house payment and i've got children and so forth and a car payment and i guess i might be wired a little different way uh that i've always had you know typically had success so i may be a little more courageous but there's a lot of truth in that and then some companies it's not even safe it's the culture right. is just not safe so one of the things, if you're going to lead a change or, or if you're inspired to transform something, whether it be a health plan or something else, um, it's good to talk, get the support from those above you. Maybe it's a board. It probably in most cases, it's CEOs or if it's a, a family company, the owners mm -hmm. and educate them and let them know of the potential, but also that the change process is not going to be perfect because there are cases where someone has even tried to lead change. And then you get in that middle desert, as I call it, and a couple of things go wrong and people start talking like, I guess he's just not performing and he's not really. And pretty soon you find yourself without a job. And that that has happened. Um, there's a lady. Uh, it's not common. I think you fight through it. But uh, I know of HR. I know of folks that that's happened to. And it's never happened to me specifically from a change process. I've been reorged a couple of times. <laughs> but um but uh, that that is the I think the greatest fear is like I'll lose my job if this doesn't go well, and that's a real fear to have. Yeah, and if someone is in that mindset, or or maybe they're more like you, and they want to change, but they're having a difficulty even broaching that subject with upper management, with the CFO or the CEO or the owner, or whoever that is. What steps do you recommend they take? I understand you said, hey, there's, here's what the savings could look like, but how do they even find that out? Where, where are they going to, to maybe get some of that information? Where, where's a resource that, that may be able to provide them some of that to start the own change process in their mind to see what's out there? So you're talking, you're talking about education of how to do that? Yeah. yeah, that and so let's say someone they're just always Blue Cross and they they right. they hear 
about these other things out there. You know, there I know that just changing every three years from Blue Cross to United, then United to Aetna. Yeah. I know that's been our strategy. Our right. strategy's been to right. to make this change, right? Um, but what is what's another strategy? Well, I've heard about this self-funding or level funding thing. Uh, but whenever I brought it up to my big to my brokerage, they're like, no, you don't want to do any of that stuff. That stuff's dangerous. That stuff's crazy. Um, but I but I, I want to learn more of myself because these guys, uh, you know, maybe it's not in uh, their best benefit, but maybe it's in ours. What's some resources that they can go to to kind of get that? I mean, I know you have uh, some some resources in Wisconsin because you have a best practices group. Uh, right. So if someone's there, uh, tell us a little bit about that group and how you started as well. But mm-hmm. any other resources you think an HR professional could use to, to get some of that information? Yeah, I would say, interestingly, like on the employer health plan improvement, I would say the resources maybe are, they're more. Uh, but I always found that the change management books I read were, weren't giving me the answers I was seeking. There's one called uh, Leading Change. It's an, kind of an old book by a guy named John Cotter. He was a Harvard professor. That one helped me. I have a really uh, cool leadership video from Lou Holtz. That's probably my gold mine. It's not even published. I'm glad to share it because it's 20 plus years old. But Lou Holtz was a transformational leader and a coach. He took six losing football programs and made them into winning programs including the national championship. So the literature and the resources are slim. Uh, but I would say a lot of it we know, a lot of it we know inherently. And probably the mistake I made, the biggest the biggest mistake I made early, the first half of my career, if you will, when I was very passionate, but I was still young and green, is I would try to do it all in one meeting. I would see a clear opportunity. I would know how to fix it, but I would go have a conversation with the president and I would try to have it all in one meeting. And that's actually a mistake. And so that he's got or she's got five other things on you know their mind. And um, so I would start to do the faucet drip. I'd be in a meeting sitting next to next to him, say at Merrill Steel, and I'd say, Yeah, our healthcare, I'm seeing a trend of our healthcare. I started measuring our healthcare costs the last five years. I'm seeing a concerning trend. That's it. That's all I'm gonna say right now. He's got to get to his next meeting. So do I. Then the next time I'm gonna maybe talk into an owner. Uh, yeah, you know, this is our this is actually our third biggest expense. And I've got this graph I've been doing. And and so then I'm going to just say that and then I'm going to move on. And I so I plant these seeds. And then when we're ready for the bigger meeting, I'll say, you know what, I really think we need to do something here. And I don't know what yet, but our and so get them to detach, get them to say, we agree, we need to do something here. And then you can start talking about solutions. You know, when we started implementing even the on-site clinic at Merrill Steel, and I, I could show you my my justification proposal, and you would probably laugh. And I I laugh because it's it's misguided. It's good intent, but it has everything from saving eighteen thousand off the of drug screens to, you know, very minimal stuff. And um, then we found out where the real money is, right? In the in the secondary referrals and things like that. But but after that, I didn't need to make a lot of proposals. I had the trust. We had saved big money just in the first quarter. And uh, so a lot of that is just also not being afraid to jump in and learn. A lot of the the wisdom I for years I would always search for this wisdom, if you will, and I never I rarely found it in books. I just had to go out and try and learn it the hard way, if you will. So you you mentioned something that I think is is very interesting, and that is you're in a group with 60 HR professionals and you and the question is asked, 
who keeps data on various things, anywhere from how, how your health plan performs to um, kind of what you mentioned earlier, how your hiring practices work. Um, maybe maybe they have simple things like attrition, right? So we know what our turnover rate looks like because you almost have to, uh, depending on the industry. Uh, but the fact that that is not a really followed thing, something that there's, that that is just, that kind of boggles my mind, that that is not just, of course we follow that. We know exactly what our health costs are. We know what the trend is over the year. We know all of those things. The fact that they don't have that information is, is kind of crazy. It is, as it makes you want to kind of bang your head against the wall, especially if you've had that experience. And even that, I'll call it fun, is measuring something and trying to improve it. I, I think the culture's you know, the cultures make people hesitant to change. That might be the invisible monster behind a lot of employers' hesitation to do things. I had one person tell me, Matt, you never admit a mistake. Now, these weren't healthy cultures. <laughs> but, <laughs> what? Never admit a mistake. Even if you make one, don't admit it. They'll eat your lunch. And uh, I had one, I, there was an example I put in the book, you know, as I had started measuring, I had a little packet, I called it an HR dashboard, and we'd go through it every month. And and the, and the goal, by the way, the goal is to know where you are. You don't, you can't, you can't determine where you're going to go if you don't know where you are, right? And so the first step is to say, here's where we are today, and then how are we going to make it better? So the goal, the motivation is good. But I had showed him a graph for his areas, right? And their and their turnover it was kind of ugly, as probably many areas are in many companies today, just by the nature of the you know of the workforce today. And the and the short more there's more jobs than people. But so I showed him that graph and he said, You can't show that. You can't show that, right? So it wasn't safe for him. I wasn't trying to embarrass him. But I said, What do you how are we ever gonna know if we even improve if we don't get a baseline measure? And so just wasn't the way that I'm wired. But it but his his motives weren't bad, but his motives were I'll get in trouble, I'll lose my job, kind of thoughts. And so top leaders of companies need to make that safe for people to first measure where you are, even if it's bad, because your goal is to get better. Yeah. And, and that kind of goes back to what you said earlier. I don't, I'm not wired to take a risk. My job is to manage that HR thing is to manage the situation, whatever I inherited. I'm not going to try to make it better. Uh, maybe I'm making an efficiency change here or there that I see that's kind of blatant. But other than that, we're just going to roll on with the status quo. As long as I don't screw anything up. Maybe nobody will notice. <laughs> or this is just normal for us to suck it. It's just normal. Healthcare, right? you say, yeah, healthcare or turnover. Right. We hear that, right? Okay, this is the restaurant industry. We have high turnover. This is the service industry. We have high turnover. Um, yeah. We can't do anything about our healthcare cost. Okay, we were a company of this size and we get, this kind of renewal every year, that's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. I mean, we we hear this. We hear this churn all the time. It, it's very interesting. I have a, a recent employer who owns a restaurant, and we've been trying to get them a health plan for well over a year, almost two years now. And they've got this great interest until it's actually time to do something. And we run quotes and we run quotes and we run quotes and then, oh, we're just going to do, we're going to do everybody. Okay. No, we're just going to do the management team. Okay. No, we're just going to do this. Mm -hmm. And every single time it's like we're something else. Well, 
we finally got down to what the real problem is, is that when you go to talk to the folks, which I finally got the opportunity to sit down and talk to the people, most of them have coverage somewhere else or they're not going to spend the money on a health plan. They're just not going to. There's, there's not a lot of income there to begin with because of the way of the structure, because of that business. And the ones that want it and are pushing for it need it because of health concerns. Hmm. So now you get down to where uh, maybe you're going to have a 30% participation rate. Well, no one's going to write that in most cases. You're not going to be able to get anything. Uh, so we came up with some very unique options for them, but they didn't they were almost embarrassed. The ownership was almost embarrassed to talk about and let us talk with these people because he was, you know, I've owned some restaurants in the past. So I knew what to expect. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it's almost like, well, but if he meets my people, he's going to think that I'm nuts. Well, no, I know you're nuts. You own restaurants. So that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I know how crazy it is to own a restaurant. Uh, but the folks were good people. They're really good people. They're, and most of them are young. And don't really know what they want in life yet, and don't understand how healthcare works, and don't understand how health insurance works, and they may not even know what's out there. So we actually made some very creative uh, things for them, and now pretty much their entire management staff at a pretty low cost all has access to healthcare. Because when you actually had a talk with them about what they really wanted. They wanted affordable access to health care. So we were able to get them memberships, basically in a direct primary care, to take care of the needs for them and their family. Nice. That's the first step. And sometimes it's just got to be those little steps, right? It's a little step. So even if you're with a bigger company in HR, the first thing you did was an on-site clinic, right? You didn't just say, we're going to make this huge change. We're going to throw everything out and we're going to bring in this whole thing. It doesn't have to start there. It can start with baby steps. Yeah, I always say uh, the hardest part of a new initiative is getting it started. And I, so often we get this analysis paralysis. And I, yeah. I wouldn't have known anything close to what I know today about steps two, three, four, five, thirty-five. 35. Um, but yeah, I mean, often we, I think we get so overwhelmed that we never take that first step. So my suggestion in those situations would be, just get it started. And then don't worry about step two, get step one running fine. And then once you're off, it's much easier. But I think that often stalls the car from even starting in many of those cases, because they get overwhelmed by steps that stuff's going to change as you go. And you're never going to be able to predict step 10 anyway. Yeah. And you're, you're hundred percent. I mean, that's the well-known thing, right? What's the hardest step? Step one. It's getting started. I mean, we can talk about this all day long. We can make plans all day long, but until we actually implement something, mm -hmm. we're never going anywhere. Right. There's actually, that's actually tied to motivational research. You know, it's like, I don't want to do my math homework. I don't want to do my math homework. I cannot make myself do my math homework, but you sit down at your desk and you start doing your math. You're like, this isn't that bad. It's actually kind of fun. Doesn't it? Right. But it's this getting started. Another another kind of factor, I don't know if you've seen, but and you have to be careful if you're initiating change. I happened to meet with a company earlier today, and I was inspired by a, a young HR professional. And she was someone I talked about, maybe we should wait a year. And she said, no, we can't wait a year. We've got to go. And I'm like, wow, that's the kind of, kind of people that I want to work with. Uh, 
So yeah, and for her, there's something right that she's measured that tells her we can't wait. She she knows we can't stay here, and so where where I was kind of going with that is you know one thing to be aware of, especially if you're newer. But sometimes with this change, let's say she's I don't know if she's newer. I didn't look how long she'd been there. I think she's within a couple of years. But say somebody new comes into an organization company and they see opportunity, maybe they start measuring something. You do have to be a little careful if you're newer because maybe say someone's been managing that for 10 years or 15 years. And so uh, they might be very um, hesitant or even scared or offended if it's like, because essentially what you're saying, if this is really broken, is that you failed. And that's really not what you're saying. But right. can, so there's all these people things that can stop. Even when you know exactly what to do, they can certainly stall progress if you're not careful. No, so that kind of goes back to your little whisper of this, little whisper of that. And maybe sometimes the person who's been in charge of that the whole time, it needs to be <clears throat> their idea to make some of these changes, right? Um, I know that that's difficult, though. That is difficult for someone uh, that wants the uh, the credit, I guess you could say. But sometimes the best thing to do is to not worry about who gets the credit, but to make the change, to, to, to help with that change, whatever it looks like, even if someone else gets to take credit for it. Yeah, I think that's a Ronald Reagan quote. Have you ever heard that? It says, it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't care who gets the credit. That's exactly right. And a lead, you know, a leader, uh, a transformational leader, as I call it, so a leader who can go in and really transform uh, some something from A to B or take a group from here to there. Uh, it's if it's about involvement, which is a great, right, a great lever to to uh, to pull to get that to work. Then it can't be about you. It needs to be about a cause. It needs to be about an effort. And so, the more people involved, the better. Yeah. So, uh, big effort, big cause. Uh, Free Market Medical Association. Both of us are members of that organization. Uh, you have kind of taken the reins there in Wisconsin. Um, love, of course, uh, 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 Dr. Keith Smith and Jay Kempton have been on the show a few different times back whenever I was doing the radio show and now they've been on the podcast they've been on. How influential and how much of an encouragement have they been through your process? Yeah, they've really, uh, really become good friends. As you know, Keith wrote the foreword to my book and I've learned so much from him. I used to watch his his uh, video blogs or blogs or whatever you call it, but his videos and he's so knowledgeable. But I can tell you, they were an inspiration to me. Now, they might say the same thing about me because there are, it seems they're so rare of companies that are you know willing to really take chances. But I was coming back, we had two big locations. I was coming back from Missouri and I, I'm I'm a driver. I like if it's like 10 hours or 11, I'll drive. I don't know if everyone's like that, but I, I like the predictability of it. So I got my car when I'm there and I'm always there on time. Uh, so I'm driving back, of course, catching up on a lot of phone calls. You got 10 or 11 hours to do it. And uh, so I, I reached, I called SCO. I, did, I just heard about them. I didn't know really anything about them. I looked at their website, right? And so I now I'm into this next stage. We've got our clinic and we want to start We've got our on-site MRI, but now I, I have, if I can buy surgeries, you know, high quality surgeries at low cost, I'm going to do that. And so, so I, I called the front desk of SCO and the, and the lady said it was like a Friday and she's like, yeah, just send Keith an email and I, uh, on Monday and what in, you know, that'll get it started in my mind. I'm like, 
really? Right. Why don't you, I, I had questions for you. Why didn't you just answer? Keith was never going to respond to me. Keith's not going <laughs> to. So, right. I mean, who am I? So, I mean, he's like this famous doctor and so forth. And so I, <laughs> I, I get my office and this, this was before really any of this became known. This was about midway before I think even awards or anything. And uh, so I get, I type a little email with a few bullets. Here's what we've done, Keith. We've done, you know, uh, on-site uh, clinic and MRI and we pull up the truck and so forth, you know, a few good things. But um, so, and this is early uh, Monday morning and, and about 10 minutes later, my the little phone, my desk phone lights up and it says Keith Smith. And I still remember that. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really Keith, but SEO is calling me. So yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, you, you probably find this funny. I think I've told him the story. So I pick up the phone and it's Keith, it's Keith Smith and he's got his unique voice and he's like, he's all excited, Matt. You, he keeps saying, you're way out of the curve. You're way out of the curve. I'd love to work with you. You're doing great things. And that was the first time I got to talk to Keith. And then we scheduled. So I came down later actually with our onsite PT and we both visited SEO and Steve came in on his day off. And they they spent two hours with us giving a tour and stuff. And so that was the start of that relationship and joining FMMA. And the next year I shared our success story. It was still in progress. And so, yeah, pretty cool relationship. They've definitely supported me a lot in, in knowledge and encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't say enough about the uh, you know support that they give us, all of us members uh, and uh, it, it's been uh, it's been a great ride to see it grow too. The fact that uh, this year's event, which I know you were at, we were both at, got to visit some, was sold out. I mean that's that's amazing to see the growth that's happened. And I, I mean I know they were before, well before either one of us got involved. They've been around, and we're, we're coming up on this next year. It'll be back in Oklahoma City for the ten year anniversary of the organization. And man, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. We were you know we were very blessed to get to be a sponsor and. Uh, get to be on a panel this year. Uh, I know that you'll probably have another opportunity to to speak because there's always stuff going on. And and I, I want to get this out. I asked you about it earlier and we kind of moved on from there. But the initiative that you kind of started with Merrill Steel has grown into a movement in the state of Wisconsin. And you're spearheading this best practices group that has just had its biggest event ever. And you're still moving forward with this thing. You've got some incredible speakers coming uh, here, I think, next week. And so talk a little bit about kind of how that started, because it started super small and you didn't know what was going to happen. Then all of a sudden, boom, here it went. Yeah, I think, you know, some things you uh, uh, happen to you, you know, that you didn't expect. There's a lot of stories like that. And then some things you work really hard and you drive it. So I would say this is both. And so we had, we had, was, we were, I was leading at Merrill Steel and, and after, especially after the awards started rolling in and people started hearing about the money saved and employees were liking it and so forth. I, my phone started to ring a lot and, and other local HR leaders or other CEOs, they were like, how'd you do it? Tell me about it. Do you have time to meet? And so I gave a ton of tours, you know, everybody wanted to see the clinic and it was a beautiful clinic and still is. And, uh, but the time became a little bit of a burden. So I said, what, why don't we start this healthcare? We, we labeled it in about five, like 10 seconds, you know, I'm like, what do we call it? 
best practice. So we labeled it healthcare best practice group. And it was me and the, and the uh, lady at the time, she was the CEO of our clinic company. And uh, so it was very, no, no resources and so forth. So we invited a few people to the first meeting, few companies, and it was, it was still pretty low participation. I mean, there were less than five companies there. And then COVID hit and kind of, we were just about to kind of grow it a little bit and stall their progress. And, uh, but, and then after that, and then uh, just in the last couple, two to three years, I'd say even two years, we uh, had a, a local employer is going to host it. They had this beautiful big room. And so central Wisconsin in this time was kind of following my lead. They were in, like, it's, it's the least populated area of Wisconsin of the five regions, but it's the most active in healthcare. And the three most populated areas, what we call the Fox Valley, Green Bay, all the way to Oshkosh and Milwaukee and Madison have millions of people and they're still mostly asleep with the healthcare movement. So we're trying to wake that up. Um, but anyway, so we did our first event and we had over a hundred people show up. And we were expecting like 30. And so we said, we might be onto something. We'd, we'd have these success stories, uh, this the, what I call the six mature stories in Wisconsin, the leaders of those stories speak. And John Trinas, who wrote the first book on this topic, right, an employer success story from the employer, mine's kind of like the second of that, uh, at that time hadn't even close to finishing the book. I'd really finished it up in the last year, but he showed up. And I was kind of like, whoa, I had never met him. You know, John's here, like the grandfather of this movement, right? <laughs> I'm like, hey, John, thanks for coming. He's like, I'm getting back in this. You've inspired me, Matt. Da, da, da. So we just kind of, you know, he's been speaking for free. He doesn't usually speak for free. I think he sold 30,000 copies of his book, his first one. He's got another one out I haven't read called Grassroots of Healthcare. Um, but we just started. So we started kind of alone, if you will, right? It's this change management process at a much bigger scope. And then we, we just kind of tried to then get networking. We tried to get everyone with us. How many will come with us? Everybody's got their own skills and backgrounds and experience and how many we can, you know, so creating this movement. And uh, just recently I named a kind of form. I was always kind of against a newsletter, you know, I'm like, nope, it's an update. I would joke with my co-founder. It's not a newsletter. It's an update for Matt, <laughs> you know, and he'd laugh at me. Uh, but we we would kind of read, and I didn't want it to be formal. And so we relabeled it. I, I called it the Wisconsin movement with an arrow to the right. So it's still pretty informal. Uh, but now we're up to today, we're up to 1400 people on the list. Wow. And 400 companies. And so we're starting to gain traction. We've got the Milwaukee event, as you spoke of, we've got Wendell Potter coming in and Chris Deacon and and we're, we'll have probably over 100 people show up there, which was tough in that area because they didn't know a lot about this stuff and maybe more. Um, so we've just just a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, active activity on LinkedIn, as you see, and and um, and educating. And and we've also been traveling around the state. So this would be like the, something like the fourth or fifth we've done this year. So um, really what I called uh, setting grass fires throughout the state, <laughs> not trying to have a big bonfire in the middle, but setting a whole bunch of small grass fires and then letting Americans do what they do best, innovate and fix problems. So, Yeah. One of the things, you know, you, uh, you were on our why does healthcare suck uh, audio room the other day uh, when we did that. And that, and you brought that point up then as well, that you, you don't, 
just go in and set a bonfire. You set these grass fires around in different places. And in particular, in a state that has as many, I won't say problems, but as, as with as many barriers to healthcare and the cost of healthcare that you have in Wisconsin, setting those grass fires and then showing the results in, and in, in once again, having these employer success stories in your best practices, that's what really gets the movement going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's involvement, right? It's the same strategy I've used in within companies, and it's uh, just of a much bigger scope. So we've it's it's really national, if you will, a little bit. I mean, the concepts apply nationally, but we've kind of focused on Wisconsin first as kind of a territory, and it's amazing. There have been and there have been people here that have been working on this even before me, the the John Trinas, or maybe some DPC docs that started ten years ago. Or uh, or a, a navigation service, Alethius, that started ten years ago. So there's there were a lot of folks trying, and uh, but maybe some have told me that I've been able to bring it together. Someone had told me, in fact, he's a hospital exec. He said I was outside of the hospital, and I, I had tried to get this going, but he said you're actually doing it. And uh, I would I would uh, bounce back and say, well, I'm facilitating and I'm doing my part, but a whole lot of people are doing this movement, right? I've just been able to inspire and involve and educate. and But my goal is to get as many people involved. My goal is not to be the one or the spotlight. My goal is to get, like I said, Americans involved in what they do best. Well, and see, the, the difference that I see, of course, is your passion for it. Uh, I, and I And I really believe, in my heart of hearts, I really believe that one of the reasons that you are a great person to lead this is because you truly are from the employer's side. And until the employers from the top down, because it's got to come from the top, understand the true battle that we're in, understand the true ramifications of not making this change, of not taking control, and realize that it's only from that place are we going to make a true impact on how healthcare is accessed uh, and make an impact on it not. The, the cost of it not going up anymore. There's got to be a demand. There's got to be a demand that it doesn't continue with the status quo. And the biggest purchaser of healthcare are employers. And until they make that determination, until they get that mindset and they just don't say, well, there's nothing we can do, another rate increase, another rate increase. And you know what? Those guys really are looking out for our best interest. <laughs> until that happens... Then we're going to keep on down this pathway and rates are going to keep going up and healthcare is going to keep going up because uh, as you've heard, as I've heard, and I agree with our healthcare system is not broken. It is not broken, folks. It is absolutely 100% working the way that those that designed it wanted it to work. It's enriching those it was designed to enrich and it's making the ones broke. It was designed to make them broke. (laughs) That's what we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. You know, and it's like, um, you know, I, I call it payer power, right? So when I first realized this at Merrill Steel, that the payer has the power because I choose who I pay and when I pay. And so I think that's a recognition, but, you know, it's kind of like standing in a burning house. And so that's what I'm kind of seeing now employers, they know the house is on fire, but it, it you know, they're kind of like, as you mentioned, 
you know, this, we had a slow cycle. So it's once a year, you make a decision. So it's a slow cycle. It feels forever. Uh, but you know, I just don't think it's hot enough yet. I just don't think it's hot enough yet. So I'm going to wait another year, see if the kitchen catches mm. on fire. Now, maybe the living room's on fire, right? But I, eventually when that pain is enough, even if they're not even measuring well or trends, but they're going to see eventually the CEO or the CFO is going to say time out. This is unsustainable because it is. Then they'll go into action. But we're trying to kind of speed up that process and saying, you know, it is, the house is on fire. So wouldn't it kind of make sense to start, you know, doing something today instead of when the, the heat gets so hot, you can't stand it. And so that that's a never ending, right? Leadership education role yeah well and we kind of started off with this but what do you see the impact of what's happening with the caa with the consolidated appropriations act and all of these lawsuits what do you see that do you, or do you see that speeding up this process i guess is the is what will that kind of things bring employer employers around quicker because they're actually seeing you know in the case i'm going to use this uh heinz craft and etna if Aetna is not even the slightest bit concerned about taking advantage of a huge corporation like that, do you think there's some companies out there going, my gosh, we're only 120 employees. What are they doing to us? Yeah, I think uh, I've been promoting that. In fact, I'm going to start promoting that a lot more. If you saw a post I did today, it said that the article said this is the tip of the iceberg. Yep. And I've got another one ready. I'm going to share probably Monday. And so if you ever, and if anyone hearing this ever comes across any new lawsuits or articles about this, please send them to me, Matt at selffundhealth.com. But I, I believe this is a big deal. I, I, there's an interesting dynamic here in that employees or unions can sue, you know, employees can sue their employers. That's not their really employer. what I'm after. I mean, someone said that today, you know, you're not intending that, are you? And I'm like, no, that's not really what I'm intending. But if that motivates them and wouldn't be such a terrible thing. But what we are seeing is a trend of employers even requesting data, not getting it in jumbled coded forms or not getting it and uh, finding and really, you know, what are they hiding? So the things that we know that are the things that that Kraft Heinz has found out or Ford has found out or others has found, have found out. I think is happening across the board. And right. I think probably a lot of closed door meetings going on in brokerage firms and carrier firms saying, oh crap. And they probably have lawyers in the room and saying, what's happening here? So I'm going to keep shining that light and I'm going to keep, you know, promoting that because I think it's a great motivator. You know, I, I was looking at a plan today and someone pointed out to me, so they had something like $2.8 million in cost. And then there was another 1.3 and it said, it said NA by it. This was their breakdown, NA, N slash A. And I thought, boy, if that's not a lawsuit waiting to happen, because what, NA? And I, we were joking, well, couldn't they call it miscellaneous or, but, <laughs> but, but that, that NA is, is something we need to know what that one point, and we're not talking about, you know, $50,000, right. point million i'm not that large of a company and not that large of a plan so these are the kinds of things that we know are happening all over the place and so you're darn right i'm gonna i'm gonna leverage that and promote that and um it, it's i think it will motivate people into action is my real goal yeah and you know i want to point out something because you you kind of touched on it right there this lawsuit from heinz craft against etna is not 
at this point saying they charge us too much. It's saying we want our data. Right. Now, we've already seen that you charged us some crazy prices in there, but that's not what the lawsuit's about. The lawsuit's about is we asked you for data. You took over a year to give us data. And then what you gave us is all redacted. And, you know, what we do have, we've already found some crazy number, millions of dollars that you that you can't really describe, almost like you said, N.A. next to it. What is it? But we want it in a readable format, which, if I recall the, the comment in there from Chris Deacon, was they're not asking for anything out of the ordinary. They're asking for some a standard way that this is presented in a readable format. And I've seen that kind of format. You've seen that kind of format. It's not that unusual to get that from self-funded and level-funded plans. But Apparently, in some cases, it is. <laughs> it's one of the, the biggest triggers for success for a plan is having some visibility and getting decent data of claims data. And, you know, you buy something, but you don't know what you've paid or how much right. you bought. I mean, it's just somewhat unbelievable when you start thinking about it. And so, yeah, I mean, it raises question, what are they hiding? So they're they're certainly able and capable of producing timely reports and they're not producing them timely and they're not producing them accurately or read it. You know, so they're readable. So it's a trust breaker. If you look at chapter five, choose trustworthy partners, right? It's a big deal. And you've got to be able to trust who you're working with because um, if you can't trust them, then what, what do you have, right? You have nothing. Well, and, and so let's, let's kind of go back and let's look at this situation in one more way. You mentioned earlier uh, and you used the, the Yahtzee analogy. What Heinz Craft really did was they rolled the dice and they never even checked the dice all year. They, they just didn't. There, there was no follow-up like you mentioned earlier. There was no, let's look at a week. Let's look at a month. Let's look at the, let's follow this trend and let's do anything. There was no management of their plan. If there was, it was all done by Aetna as the administrator. The 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 HR department, uh, nobody at Kraft Heinz. I'm I'm speculating here because there was, you know, they should have caught this a long time ago if there was anything for them keeping track of. They just let it go and they they trusted. Here's your trusted partner. They trusted that Aetna was acting in their best interest. One of the if you if you had a chance, uh, Eric Brick Brick uh, Brickner or Bricker. Uh, he's uh -huh. Bricker. Yeah, he does some great videos. And one of the things he points out is that one of the sparks to this situation is you had a new director of total rewards. She was only a year or two in. So it, right. it made it safe. In other words, it's not like, oh, I've missed this the last 20 years. She went in, I think, and was a spark there and said, I, we'd like to start managing our claims and managing our plan. And uh, we can't see it. And so there's the, you know. And it turns into that. So good for them. And I hope more companies would realize the importance of that. You know, I certainly point out in the book and I, you've probably said and a lot of people realize, but we're talking about not just an HR retention gain or something here. We're talking about a company's second or third largest expense. Right. And and it's not being managed at all. You've heard my vacuum story where I had to get approval for a $500 vacuum, but I I signed a $700,000 stop loss that morning because it was off the radar. And so it's time we, we put healthcare on the radar. It's a huge business expense and we should be wise in our shopping like we would any, anywhere else. Companies manage office supplies down to the dollar. 
or penny. <laughs> and uh, and here we are writing six figure, seven figure checks, and and we're just trusting. And in many cases, those partners have taken advantage of that trust and they've lost their way. Yeah, and I, I thought uh, uh, Dr. Bricker's video uh, pointed out some some other other interesting things. So I recommend you go out there and look for that, guys. Uh, uh, it talked about the fact that the the top management of that company is not United States based and that that could have actually something to do with the reason that they were bold enough to go ahead and file this lawsuit. Anyway, I, we won't get too far down that rabbit hole here, but I thought it was very interesting. Some of the reasonings that he felt that this could have happened, including what you said, new uh, HR leadership, but leadership overall that was not a fan of the United States health system. And so was uh a little bit more than willing to kind of go after this, but that was a kind of an interesting thing. Well, we talked at the very beginning that you're, I want to kind of get off subject a little bit, that you're a big proponent and a, uh, a, a long time foster parent and mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a big believer in that system, big supporter of that system. So I want to give you a little bit of a platform here to talk about that, uh, kind of how y'all got involved in that and, uh, how encourage some other folks to be involved as well. Yeah, it's something. Um, so, you know, I think it ties to my, my wife and I, we have a love for our community. We believe, you know, kind of, we all should do our part in some way. And so we felt called to be foster parents. And then we were asked to be, uh, there's a maybe two or two or three sets, but one of the champion parents for our County, the biggest County in Wisconsin, and so we go uh, to churches and talk, or we do uh, support groups, or when someone, when there's groups exploring foster parenting, we go and give them the real answers, if you will, from foster parents. And so, and then we are active foster parents ourselves. We probably had 25 or so kids or more come through our home, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a year. We, we've taken four or five or six babies home from the hospital. Uh, carried them out like they were our own. They weren't our own. Uh, we've adopted one. We've got one and maybe that's headed that way. Uh, so we've, yeah, certainly just have a heart there. We've started a nonprofit where we take in goods and we store the goods and we give away the goods for free called Noah, the first child we adopted. So we've been pretty active in that. And I think it really ties to um, to our love for community and of course, children as well children who can't help themselves. And so that's why I've decided, uh, by the way, $2 from every book, uh, wherever it's sold, um, will go into a, a foster child fund, which I'm over $550 already. I thought, oh, $2, that's not gonna, you know, so I have to, I'll decide how I can best benefit those kids and I'll publicize it when I do. Uh, but first I said, it, you know, if you get it from me, because Amazon takes most of the what's left. And I said, no, every book I sell, $2, we'll just keep it simple. And so that's a kind of a side benefit to buying the book is that you're helping the foster children as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, I, I know whenever you had reached out to me about you know, purchasing some books and which, which I happily did, then you, you, gave me that particular part of it. And that made me even encouraged even more to be able to, to donate to that cause as well. Now, if someone wants to get your book, you mentioned it's available on Amazon, but they can also get it directly from you. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I purchased a thousand, you know, I've got in my, in my shed. So uh, Amazon's probably the quick and easy way, but if you'd like me to sign it or make a note, I'm glad to do that. And I can mail that off to you. Yeah. And All then right. I, and that, I've got the yeah. Kindle 
as well is available. And then I'm uh, going to be starting the audio soon. Okay. I think that's, I've had requests for that because people like to listen in their cars. And so I've, I've got software. I've had a friend help me load the software. It sounds like a challenge to me. Now you do more podcasts and stuff, but to, to read 228 pages and like not stutter or miss a word, you know, that sounds, that sounds challenging to me, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. Well, I'll tell you, it is, it is, but uh, kind of like anything else, bite it off in little chunks. Don't, uh, don't try to read 228 pages, right? Uh, read, read a, a, you know, a, a few pages at a time, get you, get you something to drink, you know, chill out for a little bit and just kind of pick it up a little bit, bite it off in little chunks when you got five minutes here, five minutes there, and it won't seem like it's that big of a thing. And I think you'll get through it faster than you think you will too. Yeah. I think once I find my groove, maybe, you know, it's how to eat, eat an elephant one bite at a time. So maybe it's a section or a chapter a week or something like that. Um, yeah. Be, yeah. So that is, that is in the works. That's very cool. Yeah. There is a lot of people that like to digest stuff that way and do much better. Uh, my daughter who is a biochemistry major uh, way, I don't know where she got that from. She certainly didn't get it from me or mom, but uh, she, she does much better listening to these things. She, she puts her earbuds in and listens to videos and listens to it. Read to her. Uh, now, part of it, it may be because of her dyslexia, but having that, it just makes a big difference to her. Whereas I'm a reader, I want to actually read it and I, I digest it better after I read it. Uh, my wife laughs at me because I kind of go through these things with these stories, man, like you're talking about I, all the different lawsuits or the whatever stories. And I've got all these tabs up at the top of my thing and as i have breaks and i'll go through them one at a time then i'll read what i can to the story sometimes i get through with it sometimes i don't but then i'll keep that right there and i'll move it maybe back to first so i know that i didn't finish it and don't click it away <laughs> i gave a book uh, to i think it was a cfo today and and then someone had joked he'll have it read in two days you know and so some people are really good readers and then you know i talked to a senator if you've ever seen my my uh testimony that i gave in front of a wisconsin senate it's kind of cool uh, because they were inspired at the end but the one of the senators said i've been listening to marty's book on my commute you know so i think people are busy and now you get a four-hour trip well it's pretty easy but maybe it's a 30-minute commute and so you can knock out a little bit so i think it's definitely going to be uh, something that people ask for continue to ask for so i yeah absolutely yeah and and so just I just want to remind everybody the name of the book is Save Your Company Don't Feed the Beast it's the employer healthcare success formula and mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is so I highly recommend it as a read if you are an insurance advisor insurance broker you need to understand the process if you're an employer I highly, highly recommend that you go through this, whether you're already taking action or not. You need to you need to see the process. You need to see some of those successes. Uh, maybe you're not getting the results that you expected. Maybe you are. But reading the book may give you still some inspiration on other things to do to even be more successful. Uh, my Folks at Eagle Care get so tired of me saying this, but it is my mantra. It can always be better. It can always be better. It can always be better. 
there, there's ideas out there to make things better that have not even be, been thought of yet. And maybe this book inspires you to think of. Maybe uh, this book, you read it and you make a comment or you send something uh, to Matt that it inspires him to come up with that idea. Yeah. It, it's it's like a it's hard for me to say this as a, a lover of uh, classic classic rock and classic country and such, but all the best songs have not been written yet. All the best music has not been released. That's hard for me to believe as a lover of seventies music, but there's still good stuff out there. There's still good stuff that comes out there, and there's still innovations in this industry. There's a lot of innovation that can still happen. There's a lot of great things that we can still accomplish together. Uh, just like uh, the story said that the, the tip of the iceberg from what the CEA has started is there, the tip of the iceberg and the changing of the way that we can have an impact on the United States healthcare system, we are just at the tip of the iceberg. And it is paramount for us to keep fighting the good fight and to uh, allow Folks like Matt to continue to fight that fight, promote him and lift him up in any way we can to help him in his pathway and for us to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. It is so easy to maintain that status quo. And if you're a broker out there, if you're an advisor out there that is just living off that status quo, just know you're part of the problem. You really are. And it's time to make a change. Because if you don't, that change is going to make you. And you're going to be found out just like these insurance companies are because the CAA is going to shine a light on you as well. So I'm going to call you out, boys and girls, because it's the only way change is really going to be made. It really is. Uh, Matt, you, you got any closing comments you want to make today, buddy? Sure, sure. Yeah, you've probably seen at the end of my notes, but I have a, a saying the Calvary is coming, but the Calvary is spelled C-A-A at the beginning. So, yep. yeah, I think I think uh, there's there's so much energy here and, and we've awakened a sleeping giant. And the big the big one of the biggest things that we get as many uh, uh, people in the game. And now is the time to change because the light's about to be shined. So no point in riding in an unsustainable wave. And so if you see Chris Deacon, uh, ask her about the book she's writing, because she actually has joked with me about it. She actually has an idea and has a desire. So I think it'd be funny if a whole bunch of people asked her about it. I've also asked <laughs> Keith Smith, and he hasn't uh, agreed in any way to write a book, but I think he should write a book. So maybe we can encouraging just a lot of people, yourself, a lot of people with these life experiences and this knowledge to write more books and to and to and to build this momentum as much as we can because that's what's going to make the difference we're up against some pretty wealthy entities pretty powerful entities that like it just the way it is as you pointed out and so it's it, this is going to take a lot of effort and work to uh to open up this free market which is really the secret that it really is and the one thing i want to point point out here is that i've been an insurance broker for a long time and for a long time during that time i thought blue cross etna humana all those guys were the good guys i did there is something that happens in everyone's career it is uh something that happened with matt there's a you read his book and you get to see that there's something that happens with everyone that's in this industry that changes their mindset but in in my case it was because of what i saw happening to clients 
that I knew was not right. Mm-hmm. It's it's the fact that I saw people that were struggling, that had done everything right, had followed procedures, had done the stat, had had followed the status quo just like they were supposed to, and were still going bankrupt, and were still denied access, and were denied things that they deserved. They were not able to get the health care they deserved, and whatever it is. Even if it's something as simple as knowing there's alternatives out there, don't be afraid to make that change. I know that financially, sometimes that can be one of the biggest things that holds you back. But how do you sleep at night? You know, I, I know you kind of wrote that uh, too. What is your what is your big conscious tell you? Well, some people ain't got one. We know that. Um, typically, they work for big insurance carriers. But that's oh, did I say that out loud? It, 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 my 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 point is is don't let your love of money keep you from helping people. Yeah, it's kind of hard when you develop a lifestyle and a livelihood. So I I get that. I do too. I give an example of the conscience, right? That that conscience is like a grass, and you step on it once, and it bounces back, bounces back up. It tells you something's wrong, again and again and again. But you step on that grass enough times, in other words, violate your conscience or do something you know is wrong, that grass dies, and no longer do you feel that that pressure or that that guilt to say I shouldn't be doing this and so that goes away but it's still there it's still deep down is there you know past that that the brokers consultants advisors uh all kind of the same thing but um right think about the sustainability think about those employees and their families and think about the golden rule and the golden rule is that we treat others like we want to be treated and that's certainly not just because we're in a position of power and influence doesn't mean we should treat someone else in a way that we wouldn't want to be treated. So there's there's a whole bunch of aspects. There's an ethical aspect. There's a future of America aspect here. And certainly would encourage anyone that's feeling the weight of that conscience to align your comp in a different way. It doesn't even mean you have to make less, but that employer, uh, that's one of the things that upset me the most is that as an employer, there was so much comp that I didn't, that they were, or that the broker in this case, that the insurance carriers were paying that I wasn't aware of. And that was and that was our money that was coming from us. All the money comes from employers and employees. That's right. Commercial side. And so I had done a CAA request before CAA was even a thing. And I found that the broker was making about two thirds of the income on the other side. And I wondered why they weren't working for me and why I couldn't get them to come along. Helped another employer recently with around 500 employers and employees and found that the broker was making a disclosed around 450 grand a year. And the feedback that I got from the employer was they don't return our phone calls and they don't come to our employee uh, enrollment meetings. And so they thought they were too small. I said, 500 employees is not too small to get great work. <laughs> and so just examples like that, until we shine the light on these things and educate employers and employers get that fire under their seat and start moving, then we can we can really keep moving forward. So that's what we're trying to do in Wisconsin. Yeah. And that's, what a lot of the the folks that uh, like myself are doing around the country. Uh, the tough part of this for employers, and I will, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, and it's it's gonna be hard to believe unless you're one of us. And that is that there's about less than 500 brokers, advisors, consultants, whatever you want to call us, around the country that have this mindset that are 
doing this strategy that are really sitting on the side, same side of the table as the employer because we're fully disclosing in every single way we're getting paid and we're only getting paid by the employer. We're not getting paid by a TPA or by a carrier or by anyone else. We only get paid if the plan performs and we get paid by the actual employer. And it, it's a very different mindset. And all it does is put us on the same side of the table. We, we, we truly work for you. And it's hard to find that out sometimes, but I will ask, I will tell you, that's a question you got to ask when you're interviewing brokers, ask the question, how do you get paid? The traditional way we get paid and the traditional answer we'll give you is, oh, nothing you have to worry about. I get paid by the carrier. Right. Nothing you need to worry about. You ain't got to pay me anything. Hmm. Well, that's great. I don't have to pay my broker at all. It's not great. <laughs> you are paying them, aren't you? You're still writing those checks. They're just, that money's flying around. Yeah. I and mean, that's probably the number one, right? I mean, to make sure there's no conflict of interest. I, I worked for family companies, bigger family companies, the latter half of my career, and they were a little more lax. I mean, they still, it was more trust and kind of logic and so forth. But the I'll tell you the big fortune 100, the big fortune 500, I couldn't accept hardly as much as a, I could accept an ink pen, but I couldn't accept a, a baseball cap or I could go to lunch once in a while. But, you know, I had to be very careful. I couldn't accept gifts over really any gifts in many cases, because they were worried about uh, me making a purchase conflict of interest that, that I, you know, I, Hey, I get baseball tickets from this one. So I'm going to purchase this at twice the cost, right? They were worried about those conflicts of interest yet in healthcare, somehow that's become normal. And we need to, <laughs> we need a new normal here <laughs> um, because that one ain't working so well. No, I, and, and it's funny I'm not going to mention any names here, but we had an opportunity. We thought we had an opportunity for a school district um, uh, here in the state of Texas. And we were at a, a meeting that uh, some of the decisions were going to be made the next week. Well, we also found out that two weeks from then, the current broker was the, uh, the sponsor of their uh, district uh, golf tournament along with some other things. We're like, this is not happening. This decision's already been made. <laughs> yeah, we run into all sorts of things like that. We find certain CEOs on boards of impactful organizations and and it really, and then, and then there's all sorts of finances and I, I get it, but there's all sorts of finances coming in from those. And so they wouldn't be able to take say an independent path because they're tied for the money here. They're so, so tied to it. That's right. It's a, yeah. It's a uh, situation. The uh, the other indicator to us is whenever the uh, the lead broker, I guess you can say, for the other organization come walking into the meeting, he had the umbrella from the local uh, school district as well. He had their branded umbrella and was right. wearing kind of their colors and all. I'm just, we're just cracking up. We're like, okay, whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, you can do to secure the business, I guess. But yeah, we need <laughs> I've even thought about drafting some kind of standards of ethics or business conduct or something for, you know, for, for healthcare in general, employer healthcare. And that's a bit of an undertaking. I've got another project in front of that with foster care. We're looking to change the Wisconsin law 
that's got to take precedence. But I think if we had some standards to follow and maybe started an organization, that might be something that could help because there are just so many conflicts in politics right now with the healthcare as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, one of the things uh, that I also believe could help, and I've already sent this out to a few different uh, companies that, you know, I, I just said, if you want this, I'll send it to you, is questions to ask. They don't even know what to ask. And so there's certain questions you can ask that will start to kind of peel that back, start to peel that onion of where money's coming from. And if you ask these questions, the first thing I'll look like, how do they even know to ask that? Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, some of them, they're going to say, I don't know the answer. You probably need to talk to my boss. You're fixing to scare the heck out of whoever this is because they're not going to want to answer that question. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you don't always get a straight answer. Even if you ask the right question, you need to ask again in a different way. And right. I've, got a forms, I've got a draft letter, you know, and, and uh, also like a chart based deal to request compensation if anybody wants it or if you want to copy. I'm sure there are many versions out there, but that you yeah. know, help form can help where you say, here's exactly the information I need. And so to make sure they can't leave anything out. Right. No, and, and that's imperative. And, and, I don't I, I don't want employers to think that it's as difficult as what we're making it sound like, you know, and because this is not this isn't as I like to joke around, this isn't rocket surgery, it isn't brain science. This is this is something you've got to go through. But I promise you, once you go down, it, it may be a, a, some extra steps at the front end, but once you get that relationship with someone who's on your side of the table and you start down this pathway, even if it's taking baby steps, you're going to be in pretty good shape for a while. You're going to see the results over time. But the other thing, the worst thing you can do too, is think that you're going to see these millions of dollars in savings in the first year because it is a process. Right. Typically, depending on the size of your company, it may take, three to five years before you start seeing some of the full effects of making some of these changes, because it is also a cultural change. There's going to be an adoption and in many cases, a gradual adoption of your employees. And until you get everyone on the same page and the culture changes in your company, there's going to be some hiccups and you just got to know that that's going to happen. Or as we say, some noise, there's going to be some noise there. Uh, you've just got to be willing as Matt has said multiple times the change management the management has got to change first and if you're not 100 percent behind it don't do it plain and simple if you are not ready and you're not going to support it don't do it because you're going to cause yourself nothing but grief yeah very very important very important because right people uh we all we all like things the way they are even if they're broken sometimes uh it's still it's still predictable and knowable and um uh, but in this case, really, I think one of the biggest things to, to get people's attention is that we can't stay here. And I think once you can get them to, to agree to that, then, then you're in a much better spot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you being on today. Uh, I think that uh, you're doing a great job out there in Wisconsin, and I really appreciate you sharing your story uh, with the rest of the country, whether that be uh, at FMMA or any of the other events that you attend. And I thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope that uh, somewhere out there, an employer got to hear this and it will inspire them 
to start making that change. I hope that somewhere out there, a broker advisor heard this and it will inspire them to start making that change, to join with us in this movement that is really the only hope to change access to healthcare and the cost of healthcare in this country. Well, thank you for having me and thank you, Harlan, for all you do because sometimes it, when you're in, in that spotlight or trying to lead this change, it doesn't seem like you're making an impact. And I'll tell you, and then, then later you find that someone you are. And I think the same would go for you. Thank you for what you're doing. And there are people watching and listening. And although it may take some time, uh, you're certainly making a difference. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate that very, very much. That means a whole lot coming from you, buddy. You bet. And don't forget, folks, we really appreciate you being here. But, man, we uh, we have the... Weekly kickstarts on Monday, 10.30 a.m. Central Time. Keep you up to date on what's going on in the industry. And then also wrap that up on every Friday, the wrap, 10.30 Central Time. We're also doing our next big Why Does Healthcare Suck on the 29th of August, 11 a.m. Central Time. Be sure and join us there. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast at hwpowerhour.com. Thanks a lot for joining us again. Y'all have a blessed, blessed week.